Today is Tuesday of Holy Week for us and for Jesus and the disciples. I wanted to begin our lesson today by reading a passage from the book Killing Jesus, which was written by Bill O'Reilly. And this passage, I feel like, will set the stage for our discussion today. Jesus and the disciples pass through the city gates. Their movements are now being closely tracked by the religious authorities, so their arrival is noted immediately. Jerusalem has grown louder and more festive with every passing day, as pilgrims continue to travel there from throughout the world. Voices in Greek, Aramaic, Latin, Egyptian, and Hebrew fill the air. The bleeding of lambs is another constant, as shepherds bring tens of thousands of the small animals into the city to have their throats slit on Friday. That grisly duty will be performed by high priests, who stand for hours in the hot sun as the blood of the lambs soaks into their white ceremonial robes. Jesus enters the temple courts. Today, he ignores the money changers and the men selling doves. He selects a spot in the shaded awnings of Solomon's porch and begins to teach. The religious leaders arrive almost immediately, interrupting him. Jesus' behavior in the temple the day before was enough to incite urgency in the heart of Caiaphas, who, as you remember from our le first lesson, was serving as high priest. Some theologians believe Caiaphas may have thought Jesus to be a false prophet. Whether he truly believed Jesus was a false prophet or he felt Jesus was a threat to his authority as high priest, Caiaphas was determined to shut him down. In Caiaphas' eyes, Jesus had become antagonistic toward the temple authority and the crowds were growing more supportive of Jesus with every passing hour. I believe Caiaphas was less concerned about the law and way more concerned about losing his power as high priest. Hebrews chapter 5 says, The son of David will be the high priest. And just yesterday, Monday of Holy Week, Jesus healed someone at the temple, and the people after that shouted out, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus confirmed he had heard the title, and he didn't deny it. Imagine how that made Caiaphas feel. Today, we will begin our scripture reading in Matthew chapter 21. Um, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the first gospel, the book of Matthew. <clears throat> as soon as Jesus enters the temple, the priests, a group of Pharisees and Sadducees, sought out Jesus and began to ask questions. They want to find a reason to condemn Jesus within the boundaries of their religious law. And we're going to read through these questions and Jesus' answers to them, starting with verse 23 of Matthew, chapter 21. So, if you have your Bibles, chapter 21 of Matthew, and I'm going to start with verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you, going, are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So the first question today that was asked, <clears throat> that was asked by the um, 
religious authority. The first question they ask is, by whose authority do you do these things? They are referencing the healings that had been done in the temple, but also all the other uh, miracles that they had heard Jesus had been performing. While we don't know their hearts, we can only speculate on their motives. And I think author Max Licato sums it up nicely in his book that he wrote called The Angels Were Silent. He says this, The created are asking the creator about his credentials. They want to know about his ordination. Did he come out of the right seminary? Is he a member of the right denomination? Does he have the proper credentials to do the things he's doing and teach what he's teaching? You see, in their legalistic minds, a rabbi was given authority to teach only after serving under the elders within the temple. And they knew Jesus had, none, had not done this. <clears throat> Yet, Jesus' miracles have been too obvious and too num numerous for them to call him a fraud. He teaches and speaks with authority, and his knowledge of the scriptures is vast. You see, they are hoping Jesus will admit that his authority comes from God so that they can accuse him of blasphemy. Jesus, however, understands their motive. Instead of an answer, he offers them a question in return. He asks them about John's baptism. Is it from heaven or from man? Well, think about it. John the Baptist had clearly testified... John the Baptist had clearly testified that Jesus was the Messiah. If John was a prophet whose words were true, the priests should believe his claims about Jesus. John was popular with the people and had been murdered at the hands of Herod. If the Pharisees questioned John's authority, it would be the same as if they attacked the character of a national hero. They could not deny his legitimacy or his authority as a prophet without causing a huge uprising, which would defeat their purpose. They also cannot confirm that John spoke the truth because then they would be admitting Jesus is the Messiah, an impossible dilemma. So they offer no answer, and neither does Jesus. And we move to the next question and answer. Let's read, continue reading in Matthew chapter 22 on verse 15. So flip over to Matthew 22, and let's look at verse 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, We know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites! Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. So here there's reference to a poll tax, an annual fee of one denarius per person. The poll tax was the most hated tax of all because it was a tax on the person. It suggested Rome owned them, while the Jews believed their nation belonged to God. In this situation, if Jesus answers no, he could be charged with treason against Rome. If he answers yes, he could lose the support of the people. Either way, the priests believed they have him caught. Yet once again, Jesus turns their trick back on them. 
Jesus acknowledges Caesar's right to assess and collect taxes, and he makes it the duty of Christians to pay them. But he does not suggest that Caesar has ultimate authority. Give our bodies and our souls to God. Give the earthly possessions we have to Caesar, he says. Score one for Jesus in this folly. Enter the Sadducees. Now remember the Sadducees are the ruling political party of the Jewish priesthood. They were the group who strongly opposed teachings on anything supernatural, which I find kind of funny because, I mean, what is God if not supernatural? Anyway, let's read their question in Matthew verses, um, chapter 22, verses 23 through 33, which reads more like a riddle. And let's see how Jesus responds to this. All right, so uh, Matthew chapter 22, we're picking up with verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teachings. Okay, this story given by the Sadducees, is referencing the law of marriage found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. Again, referencing the scripture in Deuteronomy, Old Covenant law, and it was a law that was established that protected family lineage. Jesus, of course, knows this law, and he confronts them about their lack of belief in the resurrection, and he tells them just straight out that they're wrong, that at the resurrection, people will not marry or be concerned with marriage. They'll be like the angels. He goes even further, though, by referencing a verse from Exodus 3, 6, where he says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of the living, making the point that despite the fact that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are clearly dead, they live eternally with God. So their covenant relationship with him doesn't die when their bodies die. It continues on after resurrection, just as their relationship with God on earth is continual. He is and always is the I am in Mark 12, 27. Jesus says this, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken, Jesus is telling the Sadducees. Not believing in the resurrection is false teaching. Score two for Jesus in this instance. The next question that they introduce to try and trick Jesus is about the greatest commandment. And I want us to turn to Mark chapter 12 to read this. While it does appear in Matthew as well as in Mark's version, Mark gives us a little bit more to read about. And so I want us to talk about his version. So Mark chapter 12, if you have your Bibles, turn over. Um, and we're going to start reading with verse 28. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And it says this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him of all the commandments, which is the most important. The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. 
The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Okay. Why would we be surprised to hear Jesus' answer? He spent his entire ministry teaching loving, loving God, loving others. So here he pulls two of the top ten and says the, the most important is to love your God first and then love your brothers and your neighbor second. Nothing is more important than these two verses, Jesus says. Not sure what the priests were fishing for here, but it seems that they are truly called. They cannot even dispute two of the top ten. At this point in the scripture, we see Jesus take the offensive. Rather than continue accepting questions and volleying, volleying back and forth with the priest, Jesus asks a question of his own. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 22 and read the question that Jesus asks. Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to pick up reading with verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay, so let's break this down. Jesus' words here is a reference to David's words from Psalm 110.1. Again, that's Psalm 110.1. And in the Old Testament scripture, the first word, Lord, is in all caps. The Hebrew translation of this word is Yahweh, which is always used to mean God, head of the Trinity. That's God's covenant name. The second reference to Lord is a different word in Hebrew, and it was the title also used for God. So David in the psalm uses this differentiation to show that it is God the Father speaking to God the Son, two of the Trinity. In our English version, it's very hard for us to tell the difference. It just looks like, Lord, Lord. But in the original Hebrew, it's two totally different words. This psalm is recognized by religious leaders as a messianic psalm. It's one that is foretelling the coming of the Messiah. Huh, you say. Jesus picked this specific psalm for a reason as he asks his question of the priests. You see, Jesus explains to them that David wouldn't have called one of his descendants Lord. So the Messiah, the second Lord referred to in the scripture, is more than just the son of David. He's also the son of God. And the people are hoping, remember, for a Messiah like David, a warrior. And they know that the Messiah is foretold to be from the house of David, or the line of David, right? Jesus is making an important claim in regards to the Messiah here. Jesus, with this scripture, is proclaiming the Messiah's deity and thus his own deity. Remember back to the beginning of tonight's class and the first question that the Pharisees asked Jesus, by whose authority do you do these things? Jesus wraps up this Q&A day 
with a Q&A of his own. Basically, he goes back to what was originally asked and answers it in a way that's very clear. By my Father's authority, I do what I do, Jesus says. So after the religious leaders leave, Jesus addresses the disciples and the people gathered to hear him teach. His warning to them is one against hypocrisy. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus goes through seven woes. Now, this scripture does not appear in Mark, Luke, or um, the Gospel of John. Maybe they are on, it's only included in Matthew because Matthew's writing is geared toward a Jewish audience. If you study the four Gospels, you learn that each one is written to a specific, God, uh, to a specific audience. And we talked a little bit in one of our um, earlier classes that the book of John was written specifically to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. And so a lot of the way John writes in his gospel um, is pointing toward Jesus as the Son of God. Um, in Matthew's gospel, he is writing specifically to a Jewish audience. So a lot of Matthew's wording, if you, if you analyze the gospel, some of the stories that he chooses to include in his gospel, all are written um, with Jewish audience in mind. And so maybe he includes the, these woes in his and they're not included into the others because Jesus is specifically talking at this moment with these woes to a Jewish audience. And these offenses are coming from the Jewish leaders that Jesus is upset about. So the seven woes, Matthew chapter 23, if you, if you want to look this up, Matthew chapter 23, starting with verse 1, Jesus addresses the crowd and his disciples. And this chapter in scripture, Jesus is warning the people and the disciples to not fall into the religious trappings that the Pharisees and Sadducees find themselves. You know, this is a great lesson for us, too. I mean, we, we have to be careful not to fall in the same pit today in our churches, in our various religions of, of, of so many that we have, right? Make no mistake, the threat of this is as real today as it was in Jesus' day. And he's telling us, just as he told them, don't get caught up in the trappings. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, should shine from within you. Jesus tells us in just this one scene that there is no room in the kingdom of heaven for prideful men and women. There's no place for it. Leave it behind. He's warning the disciples to remember the humble servant that he has modeled for them. After this exciting and challenging day in the temple, Jesus and the disciples head back to Bethany, but they make one stop at the Mount of Olives. They rest there, and Jesus shares what is often called the Olivet Discourse. So I want, to, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. We're going to read Mark's version of this discussion. It does appear in both Matthew and Luke's gospel as well. But I want us to focus on Mark's version today. So flip back over to Mark chapter 13. When the disciples asked Jesus, well, let me back up. This chapter begins with them leaving the city of Jerusalem. And as they're walking back, you'll see in verse 1 of chapter 13 of Mark, it says, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. So they have turned around and are kind of looking out over the city of Jerusalem, and they see the temple, and they're so proud. And so they're, they're bragging on it, right? And look what Jesus says in, in verse 2. He says, Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Well, as Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, it says in verse 3, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask him, tell us what will these things happen? 
When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? So Jesus has just in, in verse 2 said that the temple is going to be destroyed. And, and, and of course, the disciples are taken aback because they're looking at the beauty of the temple and, and they have such pride in their hearts for, for Jerusalem and what it represents. And for Jesus to say it's going to be destroyed, they're like, what are you talking about? Tell us more. Right? I bet they never, they never thought that they would get the explanation that follows. And, and we're going to read through through this, and I, I, I think about it, and I wonder if their heads were spinning, much like ours does when we read this passage or any of the passages in, in the book of Revelation, for example. Um, you know, when we begin to delve into end-time events or eschatology, it can become confusing. There's so much symbolism to decipher and understand. Throughout this chapter, chapter 13 in Mark, Jesus talks in duality. He tells the destruction of the temple, which comes in 70 A.D., and he talks about the end times and the tribulation period where nations will come to know the Lord and will be persecuted. So he's talking about two different time periods, all in the same mix of verses. So it can be a little confusing. At the beginning of chapter 13, we see Jesus tell of the destruction of the temple, and immediately the disciples are wanting to know the details. When, how, where. Instead of talking about the immediate future first, Jesus jumps to the second coming of the Son of God. Let's look at that. Jesus says to them in verse 5, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. All right, so Jesus talks of false prophets, of wars, of famines, all the things that we know are foretold in Revelation for the end of the world. Mark 13, 8 calls this birth pain. And I think this is just a great analogy because, uh, as a mother, I know birth starts slow, but the pain then escalates, right, until it's this massive portion just before the beauty of new life comes into the world. So, too, will be the second coming. All these horrible things will occur, and they will worsen and build on themselves just before the second coming of Christ. Jesus tells the disciples not to be afraid, for all of this must happened first. Then Jesus jumps back to the present, maybe I should say the immediate future, and he tells the disciples in verse 9 what they'll face after his crucifixion. Let's look at that. Verse 9 says this, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. You know, and this is so powerful in verse 11 when he tells them the Holy Spirit will be upon them and they will know what the right thing to say at the right time. We know, right, that this occurs in the book of Acts. We have the privilege of knowing what will happen. But the disciples, at this moment, the disciples are listening to Jesus tell them, and they must trust him. They don't have a vision of the future other than what Jesus is sharing right now in this moment. 
I mean, you can imagine the questions and the fears running through their minds. I, I just, you, you know, I, I feel so blessed that we have the scriptures in their entirety to refer to. So we know the, what happens. We, we know the story. We know how it ends. They didn't. Their faith was so strong. They had to believe without having the scriptures to depend on. They had to believe with their whole heart in what Jesus was saying. And then they had to act. All right. All right, let's look at verse, keep reading. It says in verse 12, Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination, well, I'm going to wait before I go there. I want to say something about verse 13. In verse 13, he tells them that whoever stands firm to the end will be saved. Endurance in times of hardship and attack does not produce salvation. It's the spirit-empowered perseverance and proof of the reality of salvation in the person who endures. Now, I, I, I really want to repeat that, okay? It is spirit-empowered perseverance and proof of the reality of salvation in a person who endures. Christ is telling his disciples that they are going to endure atrocities, but that he'll lift them out of this world and their heavenly reward will be eternal. This is a powerful lesson for us in the mo this moment, in this moment, in this time. As we stay quarantined in our homes, we're unable to gather together, to hug one another, to reassure one another in, in that physical way. We have to take comfort in knowing that it is spirit-empowered perseverance and our enduring times such as this that will build our faith. It will strengthen our faith. Okay, we get to verse 14. And in these final verses of chapter 13, Jesus really talks a lot about end-time events. He talks about his second coming, which I find very odd because we haven't even gotten to his first coming yet. The disciples are confused about the first, you know, the fact that he's talking already about dying and and the resurrection, and here he just jumps clear over that part of it, which, you know, in my mind, I would think, okay, he's, he's two days away from the cross. He's going to talk about his death. He's going to talk about three days resurrection, right? He's going to tell them what's going to happen and prepare them, but he doesn't. He jumps all the way to end times, and he begins to talk about the second coming. All right, let's read it. He says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. 
At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. Remember the fig tree, y'all, yesterday? As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know it that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. All right. We get these end-time uh, We get these end time prophecies. The, the, the final verses here in Mark, in Mark uh, 13 are Jesus discussing his second coming to earth. Why does Jesus start off talking about immediate persecution and mix in end-time tribulation with it? Maybe he wants to create a sense of urgency in the disciples. For their work, once he's gone, will be hard, but vastly important for the salvation of the world. Every soul that they save as they preach the gospel is a soul that doesn't die. And their message will carry on for generation after generation until it gets to our generation. Y'all, the urgency is still real for us as it was for them. As we end this Tuesday at the Mount of Olives with Jesus and the disciples, I want to set the stage for tomorrow's discussion about Judas. I want to read a passage to end um, from the book Killing Jesus again. I think it's important for us to recognize all the players and where they are at this point in the week. So reading on page 207 of Killing Jesus. <clears throat> Even as Jesus speaks, the chief priests and the elders gather at Caiaphas' palace. They are now in a frenzy. Killing the Nazarene is the only answer. But time is short. First, Jesus must be arrested. After his arrest, there must be a trial. But the religious laws state that no trials can be held during Passover and none can be held at night. If they're to kill Jesus, he must be arrested either tomorrow or Thursday and tried before Sunday. Making matters even more pressing is the religious stipulation that if a death penalty is ordered, a full night must pass before the sentence can be carried out. All of these details, Caiaphas knows, can be massaged. The most important thing right now is to take Jesus into custody. The other problems can be addressed once that occurs. None of the people who have listened to Jesus in the temple courts can be alerted, or there could be a riot. Such a confrontation would mean Pontius Pilate's getting involved and Caiaphas is being blamed. So the arrest must be an act of stealth. For that, Caiaphas will need some help. Little does he know that one of Jesus' own disciples is making plans to provide it. All he wants in return is money. So we'll end there, and tomorrow on Wednesday, we'll pick up the discussion of Judas. And I've asked Dave to join me since we can't ask questions and, and share discussion. Dave and I are going to ask questions of each other and discuss a little bit about who Judas was. What was his motivation? What caused him to make the choice that he made? And where is Judas now? Is he damned or is he forgiven? We're going to have that discussion tomorrow on Wednesday. I hope you'll join us.